Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 152nd edition of the show. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for joining us. On the program today, I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with Lauren Benton, a professor of legal history. She's written an important book called A Search for Sovereignty, Law and Geography in European Empires, 1400 to 1900. Now, this book I thought was important to talk about because it really illustrates and questions the idea of fixed law. It looks at how the front lines of colonial violence uh, from Western European powers working in the Americas and internationally improvised, uh, making up laws, asserting sovereignty, and claiming legal sovereignty over indigenous lands. There's often a right-wing discourse that talks about law as if it's fixed. I think this book and the research um, done around it really throws into question this idea of fixed uh, legal frameworks and goes back to the origin points of the law and order, quote-unquote, of colonial society, throwing into question the both essential validity of those frameworks, but also how they were improvised by random uh, colonial officials and uh, military people working and asserting sovereignty over land that was not theirs. Um, It talks about the fundamental violence that is, in essence, the definition of law in the Americas. It's a very important work. So here's my conversation with Lauren Benton, uh, author of A Search for Sovereignty. It is true that we used to think about the history of colonial and imperial law as a process of imposition. People thought that if they understood the way law was working in Europe, then they could see how it was imposed, sometimes imperfectly, outside of Europe. And over, I would say, the last 20 years, the field of legal history has changed radically, um, both in the sense that we came to the realization that we didn't really have a very good understanding of law in Europe, that law in Europe is itself a process, very fractured, jurisdictionally very complex, And so you couldn't imagine that there was this thing, the law, that was then being imposed or transferred or exported outside of Europe. So that was happening on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, of course, one starts to look at what people are doing in colonial and imperial situations. And very often they are not law-trained. They um, are very aware of the political dangers and opportunities involved in what they're doing. Um, and, and so because they're very aware of that, they want to give a kind of legal narration or a set of rationales for what they're doing, often retrospectively. So they act in some way and then they have to write a report and send the report back. And so as they write those reports or chronicles um, or even what we used to think of as just travel narratives, they really are thinking about the law and they're really trying 
to the best of their ability to describe what has gone on in ways that are going to appeal to their sponsors, uh, to people in power to whom they're reporting. Um, and so law is a very active category of discourse and medium of conflict, but it's not one, it's not a process that really could be described as a process of imposition or transfer or exporting of law. So that means, you know, what we think of as the law is much more fluid. It really depends upon practice and it depends on a lot on people's um, flawed and opportunistic understandings of what it is that law should do or should allow them to do. So just to briefly say that my work really is part of a much bigger movement in legal history, although on occasion I like to flatter myself to think that I've been a leader in this direction, uh, to, to look at legal practices rather than legal doctrine. And uh, and not that we don't care about legal doctrine, but to really give a lot more importance to what people do and say they are doing in legal terms as conflicts are unfolding outside Europe. Okay, so thank you so much for outlining all of that. Um, getting into it, there's a number of you know, specific examples in the book that are very... I mean, I guess base level for a Quebec context, right? There's the, the trial, quote unquote trial. Could you talk about that um, incident that you narrate in a historical sense, but also speak about from a legal history sense specifically? Um, I just think that's a very striking example of a lot of what you just described. Okay, so gosh, I think it is in the context of a chapter that is about all the ways that European-led expeditions in the Americas are, um, are, are utilizing a fairly vaguely understood um, set of legal ideas about how to make a claim to territory, um, how to establish that claim. And um, uh, one of the ways that this, there are various ways that this happens. It's, it, it, it happens to come through an influence of, of Roman law. People think that they, it's a good idea to cite uh, these uh, Roman legal ideas, which are not particularly clear in Roman law, but that's another subject about how to get to claim occupation and possession, how to really uh, put up proofs of possession and occupation. And so some of the ways that is done is through mapping or through describing an environment because a lot of early mapping was actually very similar to descriptions of physical environments. Um, some of it's done through ceremonies, planting flags, um, actually pausing to do a, a, a moment of possession a ceremony of possession, um, and some are done through the exercise of jurisdiction, through examples, through public demonstrations of jurisdiction. Uh, so I think that the incident you're referring to, it's not Cartier, I think it's not Cartier, I believe. Um, There's a trial that takes place in Trois-Rivières, 
and you mention an execution that took place in relation to the French crown and a claim that these um, um, members of an expedition were trying to overthrow the legal authority of the French crown. And in response, there's a trial. The trial is then used as a way of securing legal sovereignty over the territory. And that is sort of like a very extreme example, at least very resonating for Quebec because of um, sort of an understanding of, you know, these uh, figures that is still that are still very held up as, you know, visionaries, etc., um, within a francophone context. Um, but what we saw here was, you know, an example of the use of executions to establish colonial rule. I found that very striking. Yes, and I, I, would, be, I would be a little cautious about uh, two of the terms you used. One is establishing sovereignty and, and, and another is establishing colonial rule. Is there, this is a much earlier, much more makeshift process that's going on. And uh, the book is called A Search for Sovereignty, emphasis on search for sovereignty, because it emphasizes that there's really no rule book, no, no very sharp set of steps that one can accomplish in order to complete a claim of political dominance. So all of these things are kind of standing in, they're performative, they're elements of proof. So a trial like this and in the exercise of jurisdiction in a very dramatic way uh, is, is an additional uh, proof of authority, very publicly demonstrated in that case, both to the audience of followers on the expedition and to the audience of uh, First Nation peoples who are who are there and who may report to others about what happened. Now, it, this doesn't just happen in uh, in Quebec. It also happens all across the Americas. And I give examples well, from, uh, um, uh, for example, of instructions given to uh, a very early. Uh, expedition leader in the in the River Plate region, who is told very specifically, when you get there, put up a gallows, and hang some, try someone and hang someone, uh, put uh, put up a gallows, and that they're seeing very, very definitely to be a mark of jurisdiction on the land, a way of adding to the evidence of claims of possession and occupation. I really appreciate what you're saying about the a search for sovereignty and and thanks for clarifying that because it really just underlines one of the broader important thematics of the work which really um, puts forward a clear argument of uh, the unfixed nature of this this entire process. Um, One thing that you do mention is sort of a challenge, in some ways I saw, I mean, please, I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but one thing I sort of got the sense of in some of the the sections was also a challenge to this idea of Indigenous law or practices of law. I mean, we can use different terms for that, but sort of like customary frameworks of, of authoritative power or like communal relations as sort of this um, 
reality that was just imposed upon, but like your book shows that there was actual negotiations. And I think it really does a lot of uh, service to this idea of agency, right? And that there wasn't just this um, violent imposition, of course, that was so central, but there was also a lot of pushback that happened in all sorts of ways from armed resistance, but also through this negotiated frameworks of how negotiated frameworks of how law or like frameworks of power would be asserted. Yes, and um, I mean, maybe I should say a little bit about an earlier work that that preceded this one, uh, a book called um, Law and Colonial Cultures, that makes the case that um, highlights the way these early imperial settings are part of a world of multi-jurisdictional societies. And the when uh, Europe, what we think of as, this is another way in which law is not just being imposed because the question is what law? First of all, European uh, legal orders are themselves jurisdictionally very complex. And there is not yet a very uh, robust claim by the state to authority over all jurisdictions. Some are able to function with a certain amount of autonomy. Uh, Because of that background, partly because of that background, and partly because the societies in which they were then moving to uh, were structured in the same way, Europeans, for the most part, did recognize the law of indigenous polities. Um, Sometimes they didn't recognize it for long, and sometimes uh, through processes of um, um, accumulation of power and uh, changes in political economy and also participation in legal systems, uh, colonial legal systems by indigenous people, there was a process of anglicization or uh, a movement towards uh, Spanish or French uh, institutional dominance Um, But the starting place was actually um, one of recognition of legal pluralism, and very often the starting place was, in fact, the assumption that indigenous legal authorities should continue to operate because there was less of a desire than we sometimes imagine looking back initially uh, to uh, to set up courts, to staff them, to take on the responsibility of administering law um, in uh, across colonial cultures. So really, we have to think of this as a study in legal pluralism, or what I like to call jurisdictional politics, because people were always jockeying over which legal authority, in fact they wanted to have the upper hand in particular kinds of conflicts. So that, that's a sort of uh, framework, I think, that's useful to remember. So then this, this next book that we're talking about, A Search for Sovereignty, is, is really a kind of extended query about, uh, uh, about the following. Um, I, I, I thought to myself, it really looks 
to all the world as if we have made a mistake in thinking that what we think of in 20th and 21st century terms as territorial sovereignty is really a strong mark of nation state sovereignty. And that is, you know, control over a territory within uh, borders. It really looks as if that is not what happens in most of the early modern world and not what happens in early colonial imperial uh, societies. So then my question became, okay, if that's not what's happening, if there is no strong territorial sovereignty, then what are the ways in which people are making claims to space? What are the kinds of legal practices that they're using to uh, order the landscape and uh, to, uh, in, 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 um, to assert jurisdiction over it? Mostly it's a case of asserting jurisdiction. So the kind of fundamental insight or one of the frameworks of the book is the idea that this is a very rough and ragged process. So control mostly traveled along corridors or concentrated in particular enclaves. It was in very, very few cases do you see, uh, or perhaps none, a case of sort of early claims to an evenly spread territory. So you get this very kind of lumpy legal order um, in which there is uh, uh, small legal zones look very different and odd legal practices get, um, get taken into, uh, get used to, uh, in these fights over, over space. Odd legal practices meaning. <laughs> That's right. It's all about the legal practices, yes. Um, so what does this say to you about like sort of the common understanding, uh, understandings of indigenous agency in terms of this period of history? Um, because even, you know, in the contemporary moment of land back and, you know, a lot of deconstruction of like contemporary understandings of uh, mainstream understandings of like the legitimacy of sovereignty in the contemporary context. Um, there's this idea that there wasn't um, negotiation, uh, that that like just in the sense that there wasn't sort of a power that that like a social power, political power, cultural power that European Western European colonial forces had to deal with. I mean, your book shows that there was a huge amount of uh, uh, attempts to grapple with the fact that indigenous nations, communities, individuals were asserting a lot of political force and pushback. Yes, I think that's the case. Uh, the way I like to express it is that that um, legal order was arising out of conflict and people were bringing into those conflicts whatever legal tools and repertoires they had at their disposal. And uh, that is true for indigenous people in the same way that it is true for Europeans. Um, there was a, a, a f sometimes, uh, I still notice it, but I would say that uh, maybe a few years ago it was more noticeable, uh, a kind of um, uneasiness on the part of some 
historians as they realized in, say, um, Spanish-American colonial societies how much indigenous people and how rapidly they were participating in Spanish legal institutions. I think some people felt uneasy about this because it looked like a kind of selling out uh, or um, voluntary um, submission to imperial institutions. Um, I don't see it that way at all. Uh, There's plenty of evidence that indigenous people were both uh, uh, persisting in um, recognizing and propping up uh, and legitimizing uh, their own legal authorities and simultaneously participating in colonial authority as one would, as one would, right? Um, So I think it's important not to deny uh, any historical actors of really complex and sophisticated strategies uh, in the law. Um, they don't have to be law trained to have these sophisticated strategies. Part of the result of the realization that the early modern world is just chock full of these, these jurisdictional jockeying, um, this kind of fluid legal politics whether or not European powers are present, uh, part of the, real, the, the, the benefit of, of seeing law that way is that it makes it easier to, to credit uh, and to understand the way um, uh, you know, people are really bringing to these colonial legal encounters very sophisticated maneuvers and understandings of the law. You say, as one would, just underline that a bit, like why, why is that important uh, in, in, in relation to the points that you're, you're saying? Well, um, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, you know, I, one of the things that I do is I, uh, I, I, write, I write about, I, I'm not a lawyer, and I write about law and legal history for a lot of non-lawyers. Um, I think that that is advantageous in some ways because I'm not very interested on in tracing doctrinal changes over time, but I think also it makes it possible to convey to people that legal strategies are like other kinds of strategies, <laughs> is to say, um, so it, it, and and that the law is is not uh, as some non-lawyers sometimes think that the law is not a sort of black box and you have to understand what's going on inside this very technical world. So I say as one would in the sense that you know if you just think in a very commonplace way about. Uh, about, um, you know, you don't have to do much more than look at Netflix to get this one. Uh, The way one would want a lawyer to argue your case in court, uh, one would like the lawyer to make all the possible arguments, right? It is not the lawyer's job to decide, well, sometimes it is, but sometimes they construct a narrative around one argument, but still they want to plant the seeds of any sort of argument that the judge and jury might take hold of in, in, in responding, uh, in ruling in your favor. And if you move that to these much less informal kinds of circumstances, uh, people are doing the same thing, right? They're bringing a kind of wide variety of arguments to the fore. Um, and, uh, and that is true also of colonial a- a- officials uh, who are doing that 
also, right? They, they too are not being tremendously consistent about their legal argumentation. They're sort of throwing things at the wall in the hopes that something will stick um, or, or throwing things in their reports in the hopes that something will make them look good, but they're not necessarily sure which of those things will make them look good. So that, that's all I meant by that, is that, that I, I think it's important to really credit people with a certain kind of uh, um, capacity for, uh, for making um, sometimes even what appear to be inconsistent arguments, but a variety of arguments taking a variety of positions because they don't know exactly where things are, might break in their favor. That was a conversation with Lauren Benton, uh, the author of Search for Sovereignty, Law and Geography in European Empires, 1400 to 1900. Would really recommend this book. Thank you so much for listening to Free City Radio. Uh, we have a new episode uh, every week. Uh, we broadcast um, on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. We broadcast on CGLO 1690 a.m. in GeoGeague Montreal Tuesdays at 1 p.m. In Winnipeg, Treaty 1 territory of the Métis Nation, 95.9 FM at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays. On CFRC, 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. On CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for Free City Radio. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Geogiage, Montreal. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll speak with you next week. <laughs>